You're listening to the IR Podcast. We are your host, Brian Betcher. And I am Michael Goff. This podcast is also brought to you by LogMD, the log and malicious discovery tool for Windows-based systems for IT, InfoSec, IR, and forensics professionals. It helps you assess your audit log settings against several industry standards, including the Windows Logging Cheat Sheet, so you can improve your logging to collect all the right things. LogMD can also be used to hunt for targeted, malicious, and interesting artifacts such as large registry keys, autoruns, WMI persistence, malicious PowerShell execution, and targeted log events that can then be collected by your log management solution. LogMD provides more details and easy-to-read reports than your EDR solutions can provide. We offer free, professional, and consulting licenses. Discover it. Discover LogMD today at log-md.com. We're back. We are back. The IR podcast, once again, is on the air, live, and... Uh, live? Well, it's live to us. <laughs> I mean, in retrospect, we are live. If you're sitting here, it's live. So, uh, yeah, we had we had some changes going on, man. Yeah, new name. Same bat people, same bat channel, same bat time. Yes. <laughs> so... Um, same bat directories. <laughs> So why the change? Well, BDS went put not-for-profit scenario, and clearly we had sponsors. It isn't uh, something allowed in non-profit scenarios. So. Like a COI, conflict of interest? Conflict of interest. So that's why we uh, are now under a new name. But same old everything. Nothing else has changed. Still find us on all the directories. If we're missing one, let us know. We'll get it posted for you. Yeah, we want to be where all the fine podcasts are aggregated. So, yep. Well, cool kids. That out of the way, let's get started with a show summary. If you want to sponsor this podcast, speaking of sponsors, uh, we are looking for sponsors. We've got a few newsworthy items we're going to talk about, some websites to share. We also have some tools of the trade to, you know, go over. And we have... This time, Malware of the Month, it's a good one. And, of course, then we'll get to our topic of the day. Newsworthy. All right, so we got a couple of newsworthy items here. The first one comes from softwaretestinghelp.com. The title is Best EDR Security Services in 2020. For endpoint protection. What are the best EDRs of 2020? Well, that's a good question. This article came my way from a friend of mine that runs a managed services practice, IT managed services for clients and whatnot. And he sends me stuff like this because his comment to me was, clearly this is not a complete list. It's definitely lacking a lot, right? You look through here and it's got Signet and it has uh, Carbon Black, CrowdStrike. uh, It has Sentinel-1. Some big names, Symantec EDR, uh, Cyber Reasons in here, uh, Palo Alto XDRs in here, Cisco Amps in here, and FireEye HX and McAfee EDR. But for example, there's no InSilo, there's no Endgame. So there's definitely some major players missing in this list. And the, the reason I put this out there is one, this is what uh, targets people like managed service providers, right? They they look at this in IT business. They're trying to provide additional services to their clients, additional protections. They get these articles. And his question to me was, how do I know that this is legitimate short of, you know, believing everything Gardner does? And a lot of people believe Gardner's pay to play. So some people won't make it into the Gardner list. You know, if you remember, we a couple years back, we talked about the talk at DerbyCon where we had done an evaluation of, what was it, 16 EDRs we looked at. And I think we ended up hands-on testing 12. And the 
process in which you go through in testing for, let's say, uh, Max's MSP is much different than your eyes needs, which is much different than a socks need, right? So you really have to build the, the criteria list of what you're looking for. Um, some of these, like like Cynet and Sentinel One, have very good front end. Silence wasn't on this list either. Uh, have very good front ends for UIs for sock people, right? You look at this dashboard, something triggers, it's real obvious, and the analyst that's watching the dashboard can drill in and, and assign a ticket or, or whatnot. So you really have to build a criteria. If you see articles like this, definitely question them. It's probably Probably more of a marketing ploy. It's somebody's opinion. I mean, this thing's got pros and cons in it, but be wary of articles that say these are the top 20 security products. Uh, you really can't just believe this stuff. You, you need to come up with a criteria of what you need and what you want. And, and we found in our testing, it was significantly different when we tried to say, well, our SOC guys would like this sort of thing. But that's worthless to, to you and I. And we like this, but it's worthless to the sock guys, right? So it's a, it's a trade-off. And that's an important point, right? And these articles don't necessarily look at that. They do have a test criteria or an evaluation criteria in here. Uh, while selecting the EDR services, core elements that need to be considered include EDR response, alerting and reporting console, core functionality, geographical support, supported platforms, managed services, and third-party integrations, right? So you got to take that all into account. Uh, but also a, a point to go back and watch my DerbyCon talk from a couple years back. We'll put that in the show notes and uh, you can kind of get an idea of how we went about testing our solutions. You know, for example, do tamper testing. Can you disable the EDR agent, which you probably find a lot of them you can? And did the console tell you that the agent disappeared? And that's something uh, seriously to consider. So yeah, that's that's pretty much the extent of this article. And, you know, every one of these were bypassable to us right? We did find a way around and we did find malware to actually infiltrate this like it wasn't even there. But all of them have small flaws like that, at least what we found. And I tell you what, it was, it took a lot of work to do this bake-off, right? That we did a few years ago, but we were able to get 12 vendors, 12 popular vendors to submit to potentially becoming a customer of ours. So yeah, it can be done. It's a challenge and make sure you use the real stuff that you capture in the wild. You know, like you said, seek advice, watch your talk, things like that. I, I got to say also that in the article, it, it says this is actually a list of the most popular, not the best. <laughs> That's right there in the article. So you don't, and number one, Cynet, I really haven't heard a lot of buzz about Cynet. Maybe that's just me. It was interesting to see that as number one. Yeah, I've evaluated them. They have a nice console. They did not trigger, for example, I'm not picking on any product because a lot of products, similar scenarios. I We have a list that you know Brian and I use to test LogMD PowerShell stuff with. So I, I went and I have a spreadsheet and I just basically dumped the copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste and dump them and execute. And they're more to test our queries in Splunk and whatnot, Homeo and LogMD. And Cynet didn't see any of that malicious power, PowerShell activity. Um, that's an example of, of something that I, I would expect an EDR to look at because PowerShell is so heavily used that if you start executing base 64 blocks, large blocks, obfuscation blocks, that's an automatic trigger to something suspicious. And there was nothing there. Um, so that's, you know, something they missed. Yeah, and that's not a knock against Cynet in no. particular. It's just that all of them had certain flaws that could be bypassed. And if someone is uh, out there wanting to attack your company and they know you have a particular solution, they will know how to bypass it. Because... You know, these big organizations out there, especially the state-sponsored actors, they're, they're going to have that solution one way or another, and they're going to know how to bypass it. And once they find out what you're running, or they believe you're running a particular solution, or it's trial and error, 
maybe uh, they try something it doesn't work, then they cross out these five solutions and move on to a different tactic. Yeah, if it's an internal red team, they know what you have, so they'll do research, attend cons, or somebody talks about how they got around, you know, EDR XYZ, and here's how you do it, and so they go find a way to get around it. So yeah, there's definitely uh, scenarios for that, right? So. You definitely have to do your homework and make sure that you you test these things and create a criteria. What do you think? You know, I want something better than the last thing. Max Austin tells me that. He says, well, see if it's better than that. Well, what's better for you? What's better for me is not necessarily better for you. I want details that help me remediate and and tell me something to improve the environment. SOC people, IR people are completely different in what they want. SOC people may just want a way to trigger and create an automated alert and pass the ticket to somebody else, right? It, so you really have to build your criteria. So take these these scenarios, look at the pros and cons, um, test them, and you will definitely, and by the way, usability on some of these EDR solutions are horrific in regards to ease of use. So uh, some UX design definitely would go a long way to helping some of these tools be easier to use. Do you need threat hunting? Can you do more than 10 queries at a time? One of the EDRs in that list, can you can only do an enterprise search of 10 queries, of which five can be live and running. And that's pretty limiting if you've got 100 queries you want to run to go threat hunting, for example. So really, you have to you have to figure that out and build that list and then evaluate the products accordingly. There are a lot of large organizations out there that have purchase these solutions and then don't use them because they haven't figured out how to use them, use them properly or use them in the context of what kind of team they have and whether it can fit into their overall structure. Exactly. All right. Next is Wired coming from Wired, how to avoid spam using disposable contact information. Disposable contact information. So now when you do your EDR, you value, use these disposable. No, you won't be able to because they want corporate emails. I ran B-Sides right here in Austin for six years and we had speakers that used disposable emails on us. And so they would know if we sold their lists out of paranoia. So this is something a lot of InfoSec people do use. It's something we definitely use when we're trying to, uh, pen testers will use them, right? Trying to avoid you know, it coming from the consultancy, right? I, I now work for NCC Group. So obviously if I'm sending you an email from NCC Group, that you, you might not click on it if you know there's a pen test going on. But if it comes from, you know, Bob's Garage, you might click on it because my car went to Bob's Garage or something. So yeah, disposable, is this something to revisit with the fact that spam is so heavy that personally for you, InfoSec people and IR people and, and people who want to learn, I think everybody should try this, understand how it works, when it's when you can use it. And so this is just an, an interesting idea that uh, we sign up for a lot of webinars. We sign up for a lot of news lists. We sign up for a lot of, you know, just lists in general, security, whatever. Uh, This might be... You can't avoid it a lot of times. Not in our field, right? And so this is a way to try to say, hey, you know, this, this person sold their lists. And so I, I don't want to have anything to do with them going forward because a lot of these webinars and things are exactly that. And larger conferences are exactly that, right? They're they're pay to play. They get the, the attendee list and then you get spammed like crazy. So sometimes these disposable emails might be something. But I think every security person should know how they work, understand how to recognize them, potentially alert on them happening inside your organization. Why are we getting disposable emails from people? And so that's a, another point from an IR detection perspective of why this one caught my eye. I'm like, yeah, do, how many people here have Splunk? queries or human queries or elk queries that look for disposable email inbound. That's probably not a good thing. Yeah, exactly. You know, I was going to mention, I can't remember the last time I gave out my cell number to some of these companies. I mean, it's becoming like a social security number. I mean, I I am protected of of my cell number a lot of times. This is good. You, You have this burner disposable cell numbers in here as well. Firefox has an extension that they're using. I actually installed it. Yeah, check it out. Definitely. Yeah, I use Google Talk, right? That 
genericizes things really easy to block. You can do it from the console. Yeah, very handy. All right. Next is nakedsecurity.sophos. Uh, a shiny new Azure login attracts shiny new phishing attacks. Yeah, this one caught my eye because you and I have seen this when people converted to Office 365 in various organizations we are involved in. And it was pretty apparent from, and this article talks about what happens when these new logins come in. It's pretty apparent that people get very click happy and don't really pay attention to whether it's your Office 365 console login you're doing or if it's somebody phishing you. Uh, this is this is really an interesting item where IR people and SOC people and uh, security awareness training. If you're rolling out a new UX, uh, something like Azure Login happens to you and you're a big Azure Login house and you're using this and you're, your people are going to see this, it might behoove you to seriously have a security awareness training on this new login design in order to try to point out things that are not. You know, here's the login URL. So when you see this new login page, make sure it's going to this location that Microsoft has us going to and anything else is going to be a phishing attack. Because like this article points out, it, it's very obvious that people will just immediately click on it. It's like, oh yeah, this new is your clicking and this is something different. And they may initially question it. Hey, colleague, uh, hey, well, right now we have no colleagues next to us. We're all quarantined. But in the office, you would say, hey, is this look? For oh, yeah, we got new as your login. Yeah, it's fine. And you just got fished. And that's what this article talks about. So it, it's something to consider as a part of new UX, UI designs and rollouts that you might want to uh, seriously consider educating your employees of these new rollouts. Uh, you may have clients where you're doing this too. It might be behoove you to tell your clients, hey, we Azure just changed our login page, our solutions on Azure. Uh, you, This is what our login looks like. We have a logo, blah, 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 which obviously the bad guys would rip off more than likely. Um, but it's this URL, so be sure to look for this URL. So probably a, a learning moment for people that uh, have UXs that change on them is my takeaway from this article. I thought it was kind of interesting. And we've seen this heavy with Office 365. Conversions, right? Exchange to Office 365. You read the whole article and it tells you all these things that that happen. And then at the very bottom, it tells you, oh yeah, two-factor authentication, dot, dot, dot. Oh yeah, please, 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 please. Will two-factor just render everything that the article just said moot? For the most part, yeah, because if I do accidentally give up my creds, the bad guys aren't going to have the two-factor. We discussed the this so-called two-factor bypass. Not really. It's not a bypass because it does require the user to literally fall for it. The bad guys have to be waiting for that user to type in the two-factor and they've got, you know, less than a minute to type it in to, to pwn their account. That's a targeted scenario for sure. Short of that, yes, for the most part, they can have my creds. They're going to rotate in my 30, 60, 90 day corporate policy change, hopefully. <laughs> and then two-factor protects them. And if they start beating on the failed logins from you know China without two-factor, you, you should be able to detect that, right? Another detection scenario is do you have people successfully logging in with the creds, but yet failing two-factor more than one, two, three, four times in your environment, which kind of means, you know, could indicate that somebody's lost their credentials. Yeah. If you have enough creds, you can statistically try random numbers, right? In the uh, two-factor as well. Yeah. You could get lucky. But yeah, good luck with that. Do you feel lucky, punk? Yeah. Good luck with that. Next article is from securitybullevar.com. Upgrading from EDR to MDR is critical, but easier than you think. We did this with IDS, managed IDS IPS, right? Instead of going down the route of managing ourselves, you know, people say that there's a lack of talent in InfoSec. There's definitely a lack of 
highly experienced talent in InfoSec. Mm -hmm. I think you can train a lot of people, do a lot of things. But EDR, as we talked about in the first article in the top 20, uh, is not a trivial solution to manage. Brian and I are well aware from uh, my previous job using some of these EDR solutions and how long or slow they are, how long it takes or how slow they are or complex or incomplete in their ability to do what you actually want them to do. You can do it over here, but you can't do it over here. Becomes a non-trivial task. And so managing your EDR can be very uh, human intensive. And much like our decision to go IPS, IDS, I mean, our manager's like, yeah, I have no desire to do this internally. We, we definitely can do better. Now, granted, you got to test these managed service providers, managed security service providers, MSS, MSSPs, that are going to do these MDR solutions and come up with some criteria yet again to test them in regards to alerting you for things that are occurring. Um, that is a must if you're going to go to managed services uh, like we did with uh, our IDS IPS solution. And we also exploited it and got all our data into Splunk and it was awesome, uh, which you may want to do here as well. I'm going to lean towards based on our evaluation of EDR and my you know recent playing with EDR and, and where I've worked and or helping others uh, look at it and give them recommendations that managed detection and response of an EDR might be a good avenue to take. It's going to cost you a little more money, but you don't have to hire people and you're reacting based on what they give you and then you can investigate obviously in their console just like they can but they become your first line of of defense and they can plug it into all the back end this article goes around gravity zones edr solution and how you can migrate back and forth but crowdstrike's got it right uh, carbon black's got managed services uh, secureworks has red cloak managed services so there's lots of them critical start dallas you know shout out to travis arnold there's definitely a improvement that can be made with managing this stuff and i think it's now reaching this place where you can kick this over to a managed service provider. And I think if you do some good evaluation or hire a consultancy that can do the evaluation or help you with the evaluation, uh, I think there's a big win for reduction of needed talent here. Something to consider based on, I know my personal experience with EDR, I can do things much faster than EDR can do from an investigation perspective. Like it's not even close. Brian would look up one system, get the data back, I'd be done with three. And that's an experience thing. It's also good tools. But a managed detection response group should be equally as, you know, mature, or hopefully, you know, maturing and do a much better job than, you know, Joe Schmo off the street. So it's something to consider. So that caught my eye as another service, I would say, hmm, you might consider a managed EDR. Yeah. With an emphasis on a proper evaluation of that particular, you know, do not overlook outsourcing. When we outsourced our network security, that was that was the best decision we made. Oh man, yeah, it wasn't even close. Just to just to offload that and leave it to those guys, the experts. I mean, they did a far better job at that than we could have ever, right? I unless we just dedicated tons of yeah. resources to that. I mean, it was. From a cost standpoint, it was a no-brainer. They, they could have doubled our cost and, and we would yeah. have still just gone with it because it was just a load off to leave it to them. And, you know, all that work went away, just went away. Yeah, except when they upgraded our sensors. That was painful. Yeah. <laughs> But we were one of the few that did exploitation of that sensor to collect that data than others. You know, we actually got a, a Splunk transform made for us because they were like, why do you want to do this? Well, let us walk you through it. And fortunately, because we know people in the organization, they, they got it done for us and it was hugely valuable. But when they upgraded those sensors, it broke all that, right? Our clocks went crazy. Yeah. So they needed, they needed some improvement there, but 
short of that, and by the way, we ended up creating an alert that told us that condition existed. So, you know, win-win. But yeah, it was so much nicer not have to worry about that. And it detected more stuff than any of the EDRs we tested did. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. It detected ransomware. I'm mean, just yeah. crazy. Another one from Sophos.com, Naked Security, the ransomware that attacks you from inside a virtual machine. I had never heard of this before until I read this article. Kind of cool. I saw this before a while back. It's got to be a couple of years where they did this as like a foothold. Bad guys got in, created a virtual machine. And then as they got around the environment, the virtual machine became the place that they sent everything to kind of hide it. But yeah, this is this is just your typical ransomware now using a virtual machine, which, you know, again, back to the, do you actually look for this sort of stuff in an alert? Do you look for any virtual machines being executed in your environment and alerting upon that so you know your users are installing virtual machines. And in this case, it used VirtualBox. So are you looking for VirtualBox? And hey, Joe, did you install VirtualBox? No, I did not. Yeah, ransomware, unfortunately, you're going to know real quick from the ransomed uh, devices. You know, this could work for any malware, so not just ransomware. You uh, definitely have an opportunity here to, this is going to happen more, you have an opportunity to increase your alerting on the addition of virtual machines or the powering up of the local Windows virtual machine or group policy, turn it off so they can't use the virtual machine or whitelist and block VirtualBox or VMware or whatever parallels and all the things that do virtual. That That's another option for you as well, right? Blacklist these things so they can't run in your environment. If you have Windows Enterprise, you got App Locker. You can totally do that. Um, so yeah, it's 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 interesting. Uh, ransomware. You'll be notified by the fact a bunch of files got cryptoed. Uh, yeah, this is a pretty obvious one. VirtualBox executing is real easy to do. And this just came out today, so I, I thought it was uh, you know appropriate for our our cast. Excellent. That's all of that. So now on to SiteWorthy. SiteWorthy. Well, this one's uh, straightforward. This fits right in line. It's not like the first time we've ever mentioned these, but the Malware Archaeology Cheat Sheets for Windows, uh, www.malwarearchaeology.com slash cheat dash sheets. That's our site specific for the topic of the day. Um, again, just another, this is a better thing, but in the show notes at the bottom, the CIS benchmarks are also mentioned, but the cheat sheets exceed the CIS benchmarks. Those are the uh, the site-worthy scenario of, of the day. All right, and then next. Woohoo. Uh, have you ever used this tool before? It's new to me. I've never heard of it before. Uh, somebody was talking about it at work. <laughs> so there's that. Yeah. So if you want to check those settings on from the cheat sheets or the CIS benchmarks, and you want to see if your audit logging for Windows is up to snuff based on the topic we're going to talk about, then LogMD has a feature for free. Download the free version, and LogMD minus A will give you a nice report and compare you against the industry standards and the cheat sheets to tell you how your system is configured from an audit policy perspective. So that's the tool worthy mention of the podcast for obvious reasons based on the topic. Yeah, and it shows you how defensible your system is according to what Windows gives you for free, right? If you don't set those things, then you yep. can't take advantage of them. And so that's all it is. It just yep. checks to see if those things are set. It's all free. I mean, it's part of Windows. All free, 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 free. You're free. not installing anything. It's just all there. Just make sure you set it. Yep simple group policy changes or local policy changes and away you go. And then if an incident should occur, you've got a lot of data you can go through. Whereas by default, you get Budkiss. Yeah, there's not much there. Next topic, Mauer of the Month. Mauer of the Month. So, Quackbot, 
You found this one, right? I was working on an engagement. Somebody had mentioned that they thought the actor might be related to this. And so I'd gotten a couple samples. I was trying to help out a colleague to say, well, let me do some quick evaluation of this and I can get you some artifacts to potentially look for. Turned out it didn't really apply, but it was an interesting evaluation nonetheless. So it was a typical delivery via Office Doc URL. Again, pretty typical thing. We, we've mentioned it, I don't know, probably a dozen times in the podcasts. Created a folder under C users, right? Commodity malware tends to start in the C user directory structure. So watching for any executions in C users is a, a pretty high return on investment of detection. Some of the key detection points of the Quackbot malware, again, enable better logging because uh, of the things it does, you could definitely, as Brian just mentioned, you can definitely have the ability to detect or when you investigate, be able to see the artifacts of, of what these malware do when they execute on the box. Uh, auto runs that uses the run key and a scheduled task used both. That's not the first time we've seen that. Uh, WMI uh, launching a binary in C users, another great detection uh, point here. WMI PRVSE calling a binary in C users, yeah, probably doesn't happen normally that often. So definitely a good uh, trigger alert for people. Um, the binary was dropped in the root of the user's directory, so see users Bob, uh, some random long file name. I mean, I think, I think the thing had 12 or 13 characters, .exe. There are no binaries naturally ever found in see users Bob or see users app data or see users roaming. It just, that's just not normal. So that's another uh, detection point. It dropped files in a typical location, uh, see users Bob, app data roaming, uh, Microsoft, some random folder name, right? Pretty typical stuff. We've seen that with several campaigns, uh, Bob being whatever your username is. Executed something uh, I talked to Brian about today, syswow 64 explorer.exe I was playing some with some WinNTI malware uh, based on some conversations because I used to fight them in the gaming industry and and there were some tweets about it and some internal uh, chat about WinNTI has some new stuff. Lo and behold, syswow64explorer.exe was also used in the WinNTI stuff I evaluated just today, yesterday. So it's definitely something you should detect for. Uh, syswow64explorer.exe normally does not occur on systems normally unless you're doing some weird coding uh, and your developer develops some odd apps. So definitely a, a point of interest. The parent process of Explorer uh, should never be a binary that's from C users ever. Ever, ever. So there's a parent-child relationship you can look for. Um, something EDR tends to look for to tell you something's bad. Right? Parent-child relationships are a big thing. We have it in LogMD. It becomes really noticeable. Really? This funny malware over here? You know, random name.exe is calling Explorer Syswell64? No, that's bad. Um, Ping127001. We see this a lot with commodity malware. They're doing it, using it for either timing to slow things down or other functions. Just, you know, simple loopback ping uh, makes a great timer. But that's just not something us IT people and it's just something we don't normally do. Uh, seeing a ping 127.0.0.1 is something you can definitely detect on. Uh, the creation of a scheduled task in the user's directory, short of it being Firefox or Chrome or any other normal tools you would use, something you should definitely detect for and is detectable. And by default, that log is not enabled in Windows, so you have to go turn it on. And then, of course, uh, syswow64explorer.exe opening all the browsers. Um, again, not normal because A, Syswell 64 Explorer should not be running on your box pretty typically. And then having it open Firefox and Chrome and IE or Edge uh, is also very suspect. Who, who does that? Uh, regression testing people maybe? So yeah. And then, uh, of course, any binary and C user directory structure calling out to foreign country. I mean, these are all the artifacts that occurred with this these samples of Quack, Quackbot from the end of last year. And so uh, it was pretty noisy. And there was a lot of interesting things that, that really, you know, showed some 
pretty basic stuff that, you know, I know Brian and I have incorporated in LogMD and Splunk queries that we've built, but there were a lot of them in this one. Uh, Prevention-wise, uh, you know, block office macros, please, 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 please. You know, obviously, enable content. If you do get it through a URL, if you just block uncategorized websites, I know that's asking for a lot. You can't go to Bob's you know, blog and whatnot, but we, you know, our investigations of, of implementing uh, OpenDNS, we started looking at the categorization of these websites and malware, what, 80% of the time uses an uncategorized website. So if you just block those and don't allow people to surf at them, then you get infected, it tries to call out and it can't find the URL. And so that can do you a lot of good or in a major incident, be prepared to block it and then turn it off in the course of an incident as an automatic thing to cut off the malware. And of course, EDR would potentially do this and application software whitelisting would be another prevention technique for this and just block stuff from C users that you know isn't normal in your environment. That's the malware of the month, Quackbot. I don't have a soundbite for that one. Yeah. Not that we need a lot of quacks. The root of C users, does anything ever run there? Uh, Notepad++, plus plus, Chrome, Firefox, you know, you're... Not C users, Bob. It's got to be oh, yeah. C users, Bob, data, something, something. Yeah, right? local, Mozilla, blah, 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 right? It has a very long, cryptic uh, uh, malware. Now, I, I think I recently sent this to you here probably in the last couple of weeks, we got a malware that was 12 directories deep. That's really unusual, yep. right? And, and so that would look more normal to somebody that where I just ripped off these locations you should look for. That would get around that logic because it was so far down the line. And I think it was a, it tried to hide itself as an update utility. Watching those executions and see users, making sure you know what's normal in your environment. You'd be surprised how common everything is in most users' machines. And you can whitelist all the good stuff out there and then uh, watch for anything weird, especially random random name.exe or short for.exe or c.exe. Or you don't even have to go that far. You could just whitelist the locations where things should be running. Yep. Right. And if anything outside of that, like the root of Bob's user directory, it's not typically somewhere where some executable should start running. Yeah. Commodity will fail. Pen testers will find that. They'll read your rules and then execute stuff that is open, common attack tactic there. But but yeah, for the most part, we're trying to reduce, right? It's not prevention, it's reduction. These are all tips you can do to try to prevent some of this commodity malware. Awesome. And now on to our topic of the day, getting back to basics, incident response 101. Why are we doing the 101? Well, I mean, we dealt with entities that in, in our previous job, uh, I've been a consultant for many years of my life, uh, taught this subject. I teach it in my class. I, the cheat sheets are part of it. I worked in gaming. We had to implement the basics in order to start collecting this stuff. It's, you know, what we're talking about is how we caught the Chinese because they bypassed the security tools, which obviously can happen, especially with the good, really good guys like WinNTI. So we're doing this because uh, I, I work for NCC Group now as a, as a incident response uh, engineer. And uh, we evaluate people and we find that some basic things just like Brian and I found in the past in our previous jobs that there are some really basic stuff like setting your local audit policies to turn them on is something that gets overlooked or it just isn't addressed. And as an incident responder who's now a consultant that has to go and you know solve your problem for you, this is huge. This is something everybody should do because if Brian and I are going out and looking for stuff or your consultancy of your IR consultancy or choice, the data needs to be there for us to come up with a conclusion. And something I think 
monetarily, everybody should understand if you hire an IR firm, the more data you have, the faster they're going to come to conclusion, the cheaper it'll end up being for you. And I I can tell you from personal experience, since it's what I do for a living, and I know Brian's going to concur with the fact we used to work together, that yeah, uh, having this data available to you is hugely valuable and speeds up what it is that we can do. Worked on an engagement when we worked together. I had to fly somewhere and work on an engagement. We had a firm that came in and worked on it as well. I had pretty much mapped out where the attack systems were talking to from, you know, doing all the methodology that I normally do. And I was able to hand that over to the forensics team and say, here's where they were, go find new stuff. And that saves a lot of time, right? They didn't have to go through and try to figure out where all the attacks started and went to and and which machines were involved. We already figured that out for them very quickly. Yeah. And I was involved in one where the attackers got a admin account and they started creating other accounts. And I was able to go into the logs and quickly extract just the information I needed to tell the admins, here's the accounts that the attackers have, right? Here's what machines they logged into. Uh, There you go. Just by looking at the logs, because those things were set. Yep. So we'll probably do multiple episodes here because we'll pick on Windows today and then we'll come back and we'll talk about other platforms and other solutions uh, and try to get people some ideas of things to look for. Now, think about it from this perspective too. It's not just incident response. It is anybody doing investigations, whether it's your SOC people do some level of investigations and you ask them to go pull data, Let's say you you teach your your SOC people to run LogMD. Go to these machines, harvest this data, put it in the ticket, and send it over to us. If you see these kinds of things, right? Whatever your process and procedures tell the SOC people to do. The IR people, when they actually investigate the machines, the forensics people, when they actually investigate the machines, right? The defer folks. If that data is there, definitely helps them come to a conclusion faster. It leads them to other places to look for artifacts and, and whether or not they have to do full forensics on a box or whether we can do live triage, right? So there's a lot of stuff there. If you're going to take on purple teaming, where you get a red team attacking and a blue team looking at what the red team is doing, you need the data to be able to see what they're doing. Often these purple team engagements happen and because there's no data being collected, the blue team is you know at a loss. The right things aren't being collected. And then the pen testers say, we did all these things. Eh, I don't have that being collected. You know, that's a lesson. And, and it's pretty common that that's always going to be the case. So if you do this ahead of time, you're better prepared for purple teaming. You're better prepared for incident response and defer, digital forensics and incident response. And then also if you want to do threat hunting, the data's got to be there for you to be able to go hunt for it. So it helps you across the board. It helps you with the incident response consultancies and them getting you answers faster, which ends up being cheaper. I know in our case, when we had a consultancy come out to the gaming environment, first time they were there for about three weeks, you know, it was a very expensive bill. Second time we had them out after we had gotten all of our stuff implemented in 2014, some of the talks I also did at Derby and, and elsewhere about WinNTI because we were so well prepared when we said, here's everything we found. We were on a retainer. We had to spend some money in three and a half days. We're like, okay, we didn't find anything else that you didn't find. We were able to kick them out, saving all that money. So that's a great real world example of, of how this really benefits you. So- how much money? Uh, I'm a, oh, over a hundred grand. It's not chump change you're saving here. So you set these things for free. And you're able to save a hundred grand yeah. plus yeah. a lot of time. There's real value here, real, real value that I think people need to understand, which is why we're having this. As a consultancy, I see this and it's always a recommendation in reports I do. It's been something Brian and I have written documentation, made recommendations on in the past. It's built into LogMD because we've seen that in the past. I, you know, in places I've worked, every place I've ever been, it lacks these 
basic 101 free things. And I, I do a talk, right? IR is hard, but it doesn't have. And I go through a bunch of these things that you should do that are built in for free that I consistently find off in various environments or uh, when somebody asks for help, friends and, and whatnot, I, I reach out and say, well, let's look, this isn't turned on. And I always give them a shopping list. Okay, go have these things turned on. Make your, get this stuff en- enabled. So at least when you go looking, it's there's some data there. So that's, that's the why. Why is this important, right? This is what we need. You could uh, basically pay for your salary in just a few days if you have an engagement right set or if you have an I actually said that to my manager at gaming you know hey I just I just justified my salary here's the bill and I gave him the bill from the first time right after I came on board and I gave him the bill the second time I said I just justified my salary saved you more money than my salary exactly it's probably the number one finding I'm as an IR person will make whenever I do an investigation you need to enable this stuff. This caused me to slow down or have to go back and ask for, you know, increased time because of this, that, and the other thing. Or, sorry, we could not definitively figure out that this this thing occurred this way because these things are missing. And you can kind of avoid forensics mode in a lot of cases too. And then when you do have to go into forensics mode, that could take weeks. They can. Yeah. I mean, I generally, people ask, well, how much faster is, you know, IR triage, you know, LogMD, let's say, whatever tool suite you want. How much faster is IR triage than forensics? I- I'm going to say a really good forensic guy like Dave Cowan's going to figure it out pretty quick. But your average person, I think we're looking at a one day versus three to five days. I mean, it's several days faster. That means a lot if you're looking at a hundred systems or thousands systems, Right. You have to be able to figure out how to get that data quickly to then deep dive to find all the bits and parts and pieces. And man, you know, I've done both. Right. I've, I've done the live triar, uh, triage in a box and then I've run the forensic stuff that processes and takes forever and ever and ever and ever. And, ever. and you know, there's a few pieces and parts you find that you didn't see in the live triage because you can't because they're gone or deleted. But for the most part, I can tell you pretty much everything that happened. Sometimes fast and detailed is just as good or good enough than doing full forensics and all the details. And it also speeds up forensics as well. It does because now these guys have a direction and, and know what to look for. They have data points that they can say, okay, let's go look for here and expand that. Well, if that's there, then maybe this is here. And the tools, the, the forensic softwares will you know, kind of pull this up and timeline it all for you. And so it does help them uh, to go faster. I know it helps me for sure. I'll spin up a VM, kick off the box, log MD it. I'm doing all this while the forensic machines is generating the image, ingesting the image. And uh, I can have information back that when I finally go look into the tool, when it finally finishes ingesting processing, because that's looking look at all the disk, right? Lots of data. Um, whereas I'm just looking at what's there. The downside of getting all this data is it's just going to hose your system. Can't do it on servers. It's going to slow down your desktops to where your people can't function, right? I've never seen a situation. I've been doing this since I was at HP some 15 plus years ago or 16, 17 years ago at HP where we turned this on for large organizations for thousands of machines. Never, ever. Microsoft has done a very good job. So yeah, the amount of data that you're going to be collecting is gigabytes, right? So you're probably adding four gig of logs instead of one gig of logs, right? So you're maybe doing it times four, but these drives now are 250 gigabytes, 500 gigabytes, a terabyte, two terabytes. You're not lacking server space or disk space. And if you're building images and your disks aren't that big, change your procedure so that it can collect this information is basically what it comes down to. Also, when your security tools fail, right? Then you're going to have the data saved locally, right? I know that some of these log forwarders sometimes break, sometimes they don't work, and sometimes they skip data. But how long are we talking here, saving it locally? You can get about a week on, let's say, the Windows security log if it's enabling all the stuff we tell you to enable. If you're collecting sys depending on what you enable in Sysmon, roughly the same or less. Again, you can make it a 
two gig log if you want to uh, two gigabyte log if you want to collect more data but that is something you should also look at is how much are you collecting and on workstations that have a lot of empty extra disk space go ahead and bump it up some it's a group policy setting it's not going to hurt you any right but yeah security tools do fail we found this with the WinNTI group where they got by tripwire where they got by you know various tools we had uh, because they understood the limitations that the tools had, but they triggered so much in logging. And when we, you know, we were using Splunk, so it went to Splunk console. We saw all these executions of things and one guy got everything perfect. You know, the guy would misspell stuff. So we knew we had two actors involved, pretty consistent across the board, but that's how we catch them, right? Or if we go to a box that didn't have the Splunk universal forwarder, we could at least go look at the logs manually. We already had artifacts to look for and say, okay, guys, is, is this on there? And then query the log, however you want to do PowerShell, you know, manual, whatever event query tool you want to use and go look for those artifacts. We had big fix. So you could you can also look at event logs within BigFix. It's a great way to supplement your security tools. And another thing we found with EDR when Brian, you and I evaluated this stuff is the detail level we got out of the logs far exceeded that which we got out of the EDR's alerts. Uh, and some EDR's had the details, but you had to go dig through them. And unfortunately, it had all the details and didn't have any filtering of good stuff. So it was, it was more difficult to find the bad stuff. There was no way to, to weed out the hay to find the needle. And whereas in Splunk log management, it's much easier, right? Uh, the security tools failing, which will happen. Your red team will get around that. The bad guys will get around it with things like VM. So we just talked about in the news worthy section. Logging can really help. Tells you where, tells you when, tells you how. Um, so, you know, it's really good for that. Yeah, uh, you mentioned the massive quantities of data that some of these EDRs put out there, and then you have to filter through that. And there's no good way using their console to try and filter through that because, you know, they're using a proprietary, what do you call it, regex. So yeah. you, can't, you can't use the regex that you're used to. You have to use theirs. Their wild cards are different if they even have them. So it's, it becomes a pain. Yeah. Escape them, build the queries in the right order. They don't work. You build it one way. It works, Build the other way it doesn't work. Talking about collecting all the data. You know, I, I collect the data that we recommend on my laptop, the one I'm using right now, as a matter of fact, and I have a Sysmon. So with Sysmon, it collects probably twice as much data as the regular windows logs that we have you set. And I can't even tell the difference in the performance. Yeah. So I have None. probably twice as much extra as I, you know, normally would, but just to have it there. Yeah. And I don't even notice it. Windows does a really good job with this background logging. It's it's just worth its weight in gold. And since it doesn't weigh anything, it's worth worth <laughs> it's worth a lot. <laughs> it's infinite. It doesn't weigh anything, but it's worth a lot. That's right. But yeah, I, I, I concur. I run Sysmon and everything. The laptop we're talking on right now has it. Everything in my place goes up to Humio. I have consoles that watch everything if I installed something and see users. And, you know, that's another scenario, right? When you start collecting this information and it's finally there, when you start to go trying to collect the information into a SIM, you know, yes, licensing exists. Yes, storage limitations exist. But you at least have data where you can collect one machine or a critical server. You can collect all the things and then you can start working at parsing it down to figure out what the proper items that you want to collect that are incredibly high value, right? Do I have to see everything to collect the four things that I want? No, once you figure figure out what those four things you want in a user environment. It's definitely C users, right? An application server, it's going to be the web server portion area. Totally different scenario. If it's an active directory, you definitely want the login information, right? So uh, it depends what the functions are, but you can definitely say at this point, well, let's collect just what's going on with C users and let's not collect what we know to be normal Chrome, Firefox, Novet Plus Plus, or whatever the normal stuff is. And you can throw a lot of this stuff out so that there isn't much going on license-wise. I mean, I have C users covered on 
one, two, three laptops, uh, two desktops, and a server, 2012 server. I get C users alerts maybe once a week. So it's not a lot because I've filtered out all the stuff I normally use. And in corporate America, I would think that would be somewhat normal. In an environment, they have a lot of admins that can install anything. You'll get some variants. But I find about 75-80% of systems generally are configured pretty similarly in a, in a corporate environment with the difference of program file, application, HR, whatever apps will be will vary. Yep. Is my take. I think that's it. Are we done? Well, let's let's reiterate the problem we're trying to solve for our listeners or what, what's the problem we want our listeners to solve. I, I think this is still a big issue. It's free. It's something that's just an internal, you know, call it a quarantine project to go out and validate. So when you finally get back to it, you know, something for your resume, uh, something for your career management, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, bonus time that you went out and looked at this problem and found it and you, know, you have a solution to address this and, and you have some whys, right? Hopefully we gave you a bunch of the whys. So the problem we want you to solve is not only help you as a listener and your company to collect the right things. We think every security practitioner should do this to themselves, like Brian and I just said we do, and understand how this works so you're better to do it at work. It's a great interview question. If you ever interview with Brian and I, you have a clue what you're going to get asked. <laughs> this podcast is a big one. And so, yeah, it's it's a it's something that definitely you should understand, play with, look at. This is the problem you're trying to solve. A, know that you have the data to collect so you can do these other tasks, threatening, purple teaming, incident response, defer, et cetera. Be prepared for an incident, right? To speed up that investigation, that saves time. Why do we have to do this? It's going to take time. It's going to take people. Yeah, but if we ever call an IR firm in at the rates, if it's an emergency rates, that's a lot of money. And so I'm here to tell you that it will save you money. You may want to have your SOC do more capability uh, pre-incident response or triage as a part of their function now because data exists. You can say, ah, now that we have this stuff, you can do this before you open the ticket. And you can tell me, were there any executions? This alert went off. Were there any executions in C users, for example, if it's Windows, and the data will be there, right? IT people, educate them to start turning this stuff on. Security people, hey, this is why we want this. And if you're going to collect that in the log management, you're going to make the data better that you're collecting, right, for all the things that you're collecting. And, of course, you know, people like me, IR Consultancy, uh, will do a much better job and will do it a hell of a lot faster, saving you money. Take a look at this stuff, play with it yourself, and if nothing else, audit yourself, you know, go hack yourself. In this case, you're just going to do a quick audit and see how your organization's doing. And I think you'll find that this Security 101's got some gaps. I'd be surprised. I don't think, Brian and I, have. I don't think we've come across one that has passed our muster yet. Nope. Nope. So yeah, we're 100%. Everybody fails. Are we asking for too much? No, I don't think so because I don't even find people passing the CIS benchmarks which are also referenced in the other articles in the show notes. And, you know, that's a place to start. There are some things in the CIS benchmarks. They're, you know, grossly behind, five plus years behind. They don't have you collecting PowerShell logs, for example. I think there, there was an update recently that might, uh, and that's crucial. Red Team's huge, huge attackers using PowerShell, as well as the, the APT guys will use PowerShell, as well as the Commodity Malware use PowerShell. And what they do in PowerShell is easily detectable, very obvious to say, that's funky. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a big benefit, right? That's the problem we want you to solve. And if you're having a pen test coming up, mm -hmm. you should really set these because then you can see what the pen tester is doing, Yep. right? And make sure you're able to see what they're doing. Yep. I was on a call with a pen tester and a group of security people 
with this one company and the, one of the guys asked, so how do we detect this, what you just did? And he's like, yeah, I don't know. Sorry, can't help you. Yeah. And if you did that to a system they got onto after it was all done and they, you know, or they just tell you that however your organization's crafted where it's sometimes they just tell you your own, go figure it out. Then you'll have the data there to try to go figure it out. And then you can say, well, it looks like you did this, 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 then this. Uh, Brian and I did a evaluation after a conference with some folks that make some pen testing benign malware. And they were shocked at what we showed them. They were like, wow, this is more information we ever thought you'd see. It's definitely beneficial for that scenario, right? This is almost purple teaming. If you have a red team coming and you go enable this stuff and you say, okay, you know, hey, be sure to touch these four machines for me, would you? You know, if they mimic cats a machine, that's detectable with what we have you set. And they execute a bunch of utilities in the machine. Well, that's detectable. And they run a bunch of funky PowerShell. That's detectable. And they run some WMI stuff. That's detectable. By default, Windows won't see any of this stuff unless you follow these 101 Guidelines. Yeah, they were they were kind of shocked that we saw it. I, I don't know. Did they think we were running some kind of kernel agent or something like that? No, because you know sure. we talked to them at the conference. We told them exactly what we had, and we created a report for them, you know, detailing what we found. And and they were they were quite surprised. I think you know, probably don't want to talk to us now because ah, crap, they actually can catch our stuff. We don't normally have that happen. Pen testers in my group will tell us, yeah, they don't catch us doing that. <laughs> well, that's because they don't do this. That's correct. <laughs> So this is another reason I'm telling you, Security 101. And and then this podcast mostly is talking about Windows audit logging, right? We'll talk about a bunch of other Windows controls and, and how they benefit you and, and what you can do with them in another cast. But it's, uh, it, it's a big problem uh, I think a lot of listeners here have and should address and should understand that they have. And importantly, mapping this to MITRE attack is another great thing to do. There are some resources available on Mauer Archaeology for that as well. Yeah, if you can say, look, I want to be able to see these things when they occur. Well, you know, and several of them are low bins. The last podcast we had with uh, Advar Mo and low bins, low bass, uh, they're in the MITRE attack. So can we see that if they're executed on the machine? Pretty sure Advar said, no, nah, most people don't have that configured. It's why we rarely get caught. Well, if you do configure this and you are collecting it and alerting, alerting on it, we had a list in Splunk that was a whitelist of all these admin utilities. It's available on Mauer Archaeology. It has a link to Advar's GitHub page for all the items. If you just look at a quantity of those things executing in your environment, which they should not be. You should not have a whole bunch of low bins or admin utilities executing all at once. And you get that baseline for your environment, you'd be surprised. But you're not going to be able to do that unless you collect that. So that'd be a high return on investment once you get rid of the noise of an alert that's something pen testers and bad guys use as the low bins list and say, how many do these really execute? And it's the parameters you're looking at. Well, that's normal. Okay, whitelist out that parameter and then, then the noise goes away from your, your alerts. But you got to collect it to start being able to do the 301, 401, 501 stuff. Yep. Turn it on, collect it, 101. All right, I'm looking forward to 201 because this seems like quite a bit. Yeah, the Windows Advanced logging cheat sheet, 301, the... Windows Firewall, WinRM, Laps, give you some hints of what might be in those. Yeah, the, the goal here, you know, and then uh, AD security, right? Uh, tweaking your AD to kill recon. That's definitely, what, a 501 course, I think? <laughs> that was a great talk. Processes. So yeah, there, there's a lot you can do. Again, all built in. And I think uh, we're just seeing that people aren't doing it as well. And also it will help you with malware evaluation when you decide you want to go that route and start evaluating malware. And the data will be there for you to say, oh, they modify the Windows firewall. We should look for that and have an alert anytime the Windows firewall is modified, except Adobe and Chrome that do it every time they reinstall. Okay, filter that out. And also, if you work for a managed security service provider, make sure you're able to find this stuff too. We've come across a few that didn't, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, we've embarrassed a few badly where they, a company that 
but was involved in a uh, a breakup. We split the company, <laughs> and, th- and this entity of the company went off and, and wanted to buy a managed service thing, and so we infected some boxes with their agents on there, and they said, "Yep, you're all good." And then we walked them through how badly they were infected, and they were they were pretty like, "Oh wow." <laughs> Well, because they turned on some audit logging they didn't think to consider in their agents. So, yeah, definitely helps in your evaluation of MSP and helps the MSP do a better job, too, for sure. Yep. Yeah. So there's your your 101. There's your uh, 101. I'm looking forward to 201. I don't know when that'll be, but we'll we'll see. So we're planning on distributing these podcasts monthly. We will catch you next time. Bye-bye. See ya. Happy hunting.